So this evening, um, we're thinking about what it is to be in Christ, and we're thinking particularly about original um, design. Um, We're going to think about original design both in terms of God's original design for creation as a whole, and also God's original design for us as individuals. Now, when we consider God's original design for creation... Um, and how it's come away, uh, we need to look into Genesis. I've put uh, a passage there from Genesis 3 for you. It's not my intention to read to you uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's my expectation that you probably know the story of Adam and Eve uh, and the fall, and if you don't, go home and read it um, at some point. Uh, I will reference this a few times, which is why I've popped that into your notes for you. In the story uh, here, the garden that we see is the way in which God designed the world to be, and it's perfect. In the story, we also see the origins of sin and how it happens, and that will be the main thrust of what Jonathan will talk about uh, next week and its impact in the world here. But uh, when thinking about original design and how we've come away, I want to give uh, a quick uh, example. Jess and I have been very fortunate to live in a couple of very lovely houses, uh, once here, in, uh, both here in, I keep saying Bristol, I'm not in Bristol, here in Leamington uh, and in Bristol where we were before. On both occasions when we moved into the houses, the, the houses have been empty for about six or seven months before we got there, and the gardens have looked a little bit, hopefully this works, um, like that. No, it did work. Maybe Simon did it. I don't know. Um, What's interesting, however, is as Jess's dad and I began to cut back uh, the gardens, we found all sorts of features. There were rockeries in there. There was a water feature in one of them. Lots of intricate plants had been put uh, into some of the borders. Uh, Now, the Bishop of Coventry spoke about this uh, about 12 months ago, and he'd found the same thing had happened uh, to him, the difference being he has a gardener to do the work for him uh, rather than him doing it himself. Uh, And the gardener said to him, the problem that you have here is that this garden was designed by a genius and has been cared for by fools. Uh, Maybe a bit brave of him to call the predecessors fools, uh, but never mind. Uh, The point he's actually making there, which is the same as the point uh, that we have with this passage in Genesis 3, is the garden has been designed by a genius, but been cared for, perhaps not correctly. This is why the garden that we live in today, the world that we live in today, is so messed up. This is why we have so many issues between work and rest, between male and female, between anger and sexual sin, and pornography, materialism, and fear, and all sorts of other things that I could name and list. But this isn't how God originally designed creation to be. When we look at the original design of the earth in Genesis 1 to 3, we had a perfect relationship with God. We had purity and holiness. We had life. We had authority over the created order. We had authority over the enemy. Now we know, or at least we should know uh, as Christians, that Jesus came to restore that perfect relationship uh, with God. Paul says in Corinthians 15 verse 21 that just as death came through a man, i.e. Adam, so the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man i.e. Jesus, that's who he's referring to. Luke 19, interestingly, I've put this in the notes as well, Jesus puts it just slightly differently. 
um, on this occasion. This is him speaking to Zacchaeus. And he says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which has been lost. The important word, I'm not going to talk about Greek for a moment, but the important word in that, word, that sentence is the word that when Jesus uses it. Elsewhere, he talks about those who have been lost. But here he says, that which has been lost. And that that which has been lost is the original design that Jesus came to restore. To put it another way, Jesus came to reconcile his church, both uh, corporately and individually, to that original design. To seek and to save that which had been lost. Salvation, therefore, what Jesus, what happened on the cross, is a lot more than simply the forgiveness of sins. It's about individual and corporate authority. It's about anointing. It's about restoration of joy and hope and wisdom. It's about everything that was lost. Everything, that which has been lost. It's about perfect uh, relationship with God. It's about us knowing, as it says in Ephesians 2, uh, I think 5 or 16, I can't remember, um, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I put it on your sheets. Now, there is obviously a work for us to do corporately as a church to restore that which has been lost. But the main thrust of living free, the main part of living free, is not about us corporately. It's about us individually seeking to do that. Now, of course, they're not unconnected because as we individually, as members of the church, uh, bring ourselves back to that which has been lost, the church corporately will do the same. But then let's look at our original design then from an individual um, perspective. I'll just turn that off for a moment. Uh, to do this again, we'll firstly start with Adam and Eve. Before the fall, they had positions of great status. They were servants, yes, but they were servants in the royal priesthood sense, not in the sweeping the road sense. They were royal sons and daughters who were called to rule over what they had. Um, now, to help us think about our original design, I want us to just think, to watch a little clip of the film Gladiator. I don't know how many of you have seen uh, this film before. If you haven't seen it, uh, the story goes that Maximus, who's played by Russell Crowe, um, uh, is the lead general of the armies uh, of the Romans, and he's won victory after victory after victory. He is the star of the show, but then the emperor dies and his son replaces him and feels threatened by Maximus. Does that make sense? So the emperor dies, his son replaces him, and he feels threatened by uh, Maximus Russell Crowe. Um, now, as a result, he seeks to have Maximus killed, um, and his son and his uh, wife are killed, but Maximus escapes. Maximus becomes a gladiator, uh, um, I don't need to go into that. If you don't know what gladiators are, again, look them up at another time. Uh, but we pick up the story here following a fight um, where the new emperor wants to meet him as gladiator um, and comes to meet him in the middle of the arena. For years, he's hidden his true identity. Uh, and let's watch what happens uh, next, hopefully. Drop your weapons. Gladiator, the Emperor has asked for you. I'm at the Emperor's service.
Nice. Nice. Your fame is well-deserved, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a gladiator to match you. As for this young man, he insists you are Hector Reborn. Or is it Hercules? Why doesn't the hero reveal himself and tell us all your real name? You do have a name. My name is Gladiator. How dare you show your back to me? Slave! You will remove your helmet and tell me your name. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. If you haven't seen the film, it's a good film. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, we haven't got time to watch it all, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, why have I shown you that clip? Uh, good question, you might ask. Uh, what the gladiator is doing there when he removes his mask is he's declaring the truth about who he is, having hidden for a while about, uh, and hidden behind a different identity. He's removing his mask and declaring the truth of who he is. And the point of living free, I think, um, is for us to be able to stand and to say, I am a son or a daughter of the living God. I carry authority from God. I know who I am in Christ. In your packs, the little A5 card is what we call the um, Christian birthright card. Something we've slightly nicked from um, in Freedom in Christ. You might have come across it uh, there. These are all statements uh, taken from Scripture. The Scriptures are there for you to uh, look up if you like. Um, all statements that are true about each and every one of us. Now, I would be surprised if most of you, as you read through them, found, didn't find one or two that you struggled to believe. I may not have said this, but there is homework uh, with this course. And one of the things in your homework this week is to read through them and pray through them. And if you come across one that you go, oh, actually, I really struggle with that, to spend some time reflecting on it, reflecting on the passage uh, that it comes from, and uh, asking God to help you believe the truth of who uh, you are. Now, as I say, all of these things are true of all of us. Uh, but one of the first things that we need to understand um, when we become a Christian, which sometimes we can miss, is that Christ lives in us. Now, Jonathan talked a bit about this if you were here on Sunday um, as part of the light of the world, talking our Ephesians. Um, but when we become a Christian, Christ literally comes to live within us. We are, as it says in the Ephesians passage, made alive with Christ um, I didn't get this in the notes, unfortunately, but uh, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, if you want to look it up, Paul says, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Um, Jonathan used a version of William Temple's analogy, which I often use when talking about this on um, Sunday. Uh, William Temple used um, Shakespeare as an example, and he said this, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, 
I cannot. And it's no good showing me the life like Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus can do it. I cannot. But if the genius of Shakespeare were to come and live in me, I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus were to come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. Paul writes in his letters 86 times the words in Christ. He says in him a number of times more. I think this is something that Paul wanted us to hear and to understand. And if Christ is in us, that means that whatever is in Christ is also in us. His love, his power, his grace, his wisdom, his kindness, all are in me, all are in you ready to flow out of us the more that we live in union uh, with him. This is the essence of what the new creation is that we become when we become Christians. We're different and we're separate from the world around us. Uh, In Romans 8, it says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature of the spirit, so I'll try that again. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Right there, Paul divides the world into two types of people. Either those with whom Christ lives and those with whom Christ does not live. You belong to Christ if Christ is in you. What makes a Christian, what makes a follower of Christ is not that you go to church. It's not that you believe 10 particular doctrines written by a theologian 15 or 1,000 years ago. What is a Christian, what is a child of God, is that Christ now lives in you. Now, I've written some more references. I'm not going to go through them. Um, But just, uh, as I say, there are 86 where Paul writes, in Christ. I could have written them all, but I just chose, I think, three, uh, which you could look at uh, to help understand this. But what's so crucial in understanding our identity and our original design is that Christ is in us. I want us to think then about how we live in Christ and why we sometimes fail to live in our inheritance. And the first thing I want to think about is why it's important uh, to do this. Why would we bother in the first place to live in the inheritance that we have? Um, I know I've told this story on a Sunday, I think at 6.30, uh, about these two guys. This is... um, uh, Zolt and Giza Pallardi, uh, they're real people. Uh, this is a completely true story. They are brothers who lived in a cave, in fact, this cave, uh, in Budapest, um, and they had literally no money to their name at all. Um, each day they would find scrap metal to sell for pennies which, with which they would buy tins of beans in order to eat. Now one day a lady found them, uh, I'm not sure whether she found them in the cave or in the, in the town, um, but she found them and said that um, she believed that a relative of theirs had died recently and could, they, could she take a blood test to confirm it? Thinking they had nothing to lose, um, they said, yeah, that's fine, and off she went. Now their mother, Sultan Giza Pallardi's mother, had fallen out with her mother, so their maternal grandmother, long before these guys uh, were born. They'd never met her, uh, but she had died, leaving no other relatives and no will. They inherited her entire four billion pound fortune overnight. Now, these guys had riches well beyond their wildest dreams. They didn't do anything to deserve it. They didn't have to work hard in order to earn it. They simply inherited it. How ridiculous would we consider them to ignore that fact and to go back to that cave and to collect scrap metal and live off beans? 
we would consider that to be completely ridiculous. Ephesians tells us, that passage that I read at the beginning, that we have a glorious inheritance. There is a glorious inheritance for those of us who believe. He tells us a little bit later, I've written it in your notes, I think, that we are seated in the heavenly realms. We are his children. We are with him, and he is in us. Heidi Baker tells the story um, of when she began to uh, adopt children, uh, that they would have... uh, one of two responses uh, when they first arrived at the house. So you'd always show them the fridge and say, just take what you like, you can have eat what you want. And they would always have one of two responses. Either they would go to the fridge and take as much as they possibly can and hide it, or they would never open the fridge door for fear of finding there's nothing in there. I wonder if either of those two things ring any bells with you and your faith whether actually there are elements of our lives where we've gathered together something and kept a really tight hold of it, whether there are areas of our life, of our inheritance, where we've simply not wanted to open the door. Sons and daughters have access to the Father's presence and everything that we need to live a Christ life like. It's already there for you. It's already in you. It's there all the time. We are not orphans. We have a wealth and an inheritance. We can take off our mask and we can say, I am a daughter or a son of the king. I am of royal blood. I wonder if you can think what church would be like if everyone walked with this attitude. Charles Wesley famously said, give him a hundred people who know, really know their identity in Christ. Slightly longer to quote, but it's close enough. And the gates of Hades would not be able to overcome the coming of the kingdom of God. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Um, Now, I've written here that we need to know who we are. And for this, we may well use those birthright cards that I've talked about. They're really helpful things. I've got one on my wall of my study. But God also gives particular anointing to each and every one of us. There's several lists of gifts within uh, the Bible. You can look them up at another time if you want to. They were never meant to be exhaustive lists. Um, God gives particular anointing to particular uh, things. Now, I've mentioned the prayer time on Saturday the 27th. And what will happen is you will sit with two or three people who have never met you, and they will say, Lord, how did you create John to be? Lord, how did you create Jan to be? Not what's the word of the Lord for them today, not uh, how can I encourage them. Lord, when you've created John in the womb, when you created whoever is sat before them in the womb, what did you create? What specific anointing did you place on their life? Um, the very first time I had this prayer uh, was about eight years ago now, I think. I went uh, into the room and I sat with three people around me um, with two things in my mind. Firstly, a very heavy dose of skepticism, uh, if I'm honest. I was completely non-convinced by what was about to happen. Um, I thought, these people I've never met, they're just going to say some sort of random things that are going to make no sense whatsoever. Uh, I also was feeling quite guilty um, because earlier that day, I'd had quite a big argument with somebody about the way that they were treating someone else. Um, And at that point in my life, I had quite a misunderstanding about anger as a whole. Um, It says in Ephesians later on, um, 
in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say, don't be angry. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Sometimes anger at sin is a good thing. It's that you're not to let it allow you to sin. But because I'd been angry with this person about the way they'd been treating him, I was feeling incredibly guilty uh, for that anger uh, because of that misunderstanding that I had in my head. Anyway, I sat in this room feeling skeptical, feeling guilty. And um, what they will do, whether it's two or three people, is they will share the words with each other before they share them uh, with you, just to check there's nothing there that uh, they don't think they should share. And I saw them smile. Oh, okay, fair enough. And all three of them had written the exact same sentence as the very first thing they heard God say to them. And those were the words, God has made you to be a fearless defender of the truth. Um, that is absolutely part of who God has made me uh, to be. If you get to know me, it has a shadow side. And unfortunately, if you get to know me really well, sometimes you may see that as well. Uh, but I am somebody that God has made to be a fearless defender of the truth. Now, God will have specific areas of your lives that he has called you to. There will be specific things that he has given you a specific anointing for. I've had several original design appointments uh, over the year with different people, uh, and none of whom have known me. And in all of those appointments, I've sensed God affirming various parts of my original um, design. Jess, in fact, created, I meant to get a large print copy of it, Jess created that for me, which sits in my uh, Bible. This is a culmination of, I think, seven or eight original design appointments, things that have been repeatedly said um, and that I have prayed through and sensed God confirming to me about who he's made me uh, to be. Um, I use this as a basis for my prayer. I use this as a basis of, for my prayer about 35, 45 minutes ago, because one of the things it says is that God has created me to teach complex truths simply. You may think this evening I'm teaching simple truths complexly, um, <laughs> but uh, actually I declared, I declared the truth that that is who God has created me uh, to be. Uh, you need to know who you are, but you also need to believe that it's true. Now, I'm not saying, and I will say this again and again with the appointments, that every single thing that the people that pray for you is exactly the word of God. They don't sit there with a big white telephone and God says, please jot this down, uh, and, they, and they then give you that piece of paper. We are human and we're fallible, and when we come to hearing God's voice, those sessions a bit later in the course, I'll talk more about that. Everything that you get given needs to be weighed and uh, considered to make sure you know it is from God. God. But I'm hopeful that for each of you, there'll be something of your original design that will come through those. Because we need to know who we are, and we need to believe that it's true. Think about that Gladiator film for a moment. It only works because what he's saying is true. If someone had stood up and gone, you're not Maximus Decimus, whatever it is, you're Bob, you work in the chippy. Um, it wouldn't have had, it wouldn't have made a very good film, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't have had the same effect. It only works because it's true. Now, I believe, truthfully, the main enemy of knowing who we are and believing it to be true is memory. I think I said those words right. The main enemy is memory. I don't know whether you've seen this picture. Again, I put it in your notes um, of an elephant tied to a tiny stake in the ground. Uh, in certain countries around the world, when an elephant's born, they would tie a chain around its leg and tie it to a massive oak tree. Um, and the elephant will pull and pull and pull and try to get away and is really unable to. Eventually, it gives up and it learns that pulling is futile to the point where they can get a very small piece of rope and a very small stake and put it in the ground and the elephant will pull, feel the resistance and then stop pulling. 
Now, we all know that an elephant of that size can pull a stake out of the ground. That's more. But the elephant has the memory of the thing that has stopped them in the past. I suspect in our own lives, we've all built up areas um, where something hasn't worked in the past, something we've prayed for hasn't worked, something we've asked God for hasn't worked, and so we haven't tried again. The enemy uh, of us doing this is often our memory. John Wimber, you may well know, had um, quite a significant healing ministry over a number of years. He saw thousands of people healed uh, through his conferences. Is it John Wimber? It is John Wimber, good. Um, Thousands upon thousands of people healed. However, he says he prayed for 100 people to be healed and saw nothing before he saw the first person he prayed for healed. He refused to believe in the memory of what happened in the past. Uh, We need to go further than simply believing who we are. We need to agree with it. And sometimes we need to declare it aloud. I don't think we're particularly good at this um, as, uh, as English people. We're not good at declaring when we're good at things. Um, You may have heard me tell you the story of um, St. Augustine, um, who, before he was converted, had quite enough uh, to feel guilty about. He was particularly fond of spending time with prostitutes. Um, And the story goes that after he was converted, he was walking down the street, and one of his uh, lady friends uh, leaned out the window and said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine apparently looked straight ahead and said, yes, but it is not I. We need to declare who we are, know who we are, and declare who we are. Justin Welby uh, gets this. You may remember this um, newspaper article a couple of years ago now um, where it was revealed that the chap who uh, Justin had thought was his father for almost all of his life uh, was not, in fact, his actual father. Um, And the uh, the Telegraph wrote to him uh, and and asked whether he felt kind of rejected or betrayed or hurt uh, by this news. He said this in response. There is no existential crisis. There is no resentment. My identity is as it was, founded in who I am in Christ. When we know who we are, when we declare it, and when we live it, then the momentary, often, things that happen in our lives, often they're painful, shouldn't affect who we are and our identity in Christ. Now, sometimes this can obviously be hard. We don't like particularly declaring things aloud. As I say, British people particularly don't like doing it. And I'm as guilty of this as anyway. I'm far better at uh, using self-deprecating humor or taking time to tell you all the things that I'm rubbish at uh, than declaring who it is that God has made me to be. But when we do that, we're agreeing with the enemy's lies. We disregard the truth about who we are and who we've been created to be. We need to know who we are, to believe it, and to agree with it. Fourthly, we need to not listen to the flesh or the evil one. The enemy will likely have messed up areas of our lives, particularly before we become a Christian, um, in which God has placed an anointing on us. One of my great heroes of the faith is George Muller. Uh, You may well know of him, a Bristol guy, um, who uh, set out to prove to the world that God could do miraculous things without ever having to be ask people for money. He set up several orphanages, cared for thousands upon thousands of children without ever once asking anyone uh, for money. 
God provided it. You may not know that his primary sin habit before he was uh, converted was that of financial misrepresentation. He was known for being dishonest with the finances that he was in charge of. The enemy will often go after areas of our lives in which we have a particular anointing in order that we feel rubbish and useless about them. Now lastly, we need, whenever we're doing this, to persevere. And sometimes that can be hard. Our original design isn't just some nice things uh, that we say about one another. These are mighty truths that enable us to get to know more of who we are in Christ so that we might go into the world and say, this is me. This defines me, not that of the old. This is who I am now. The patterns of the world and the, the lies of the evil one will want us to slip into forgetting that, will want us to slip into thinking, yes, I probably should think about that tomorrow, but I'll do it tomorrow because today's a bit busy. But if we're to truly walk in our identity, the way that God has made us to be, we will need to each day remind ourselves of it. We're told um, at the end of Ephesians to put on the armor of God. And as part of that, we have the belt of truth. This is the truth that we are God's children, that we have this new identity, that we are seated in the heavenly realms, and that we are to be growing ever closer in the likeness of Christ. God made each and every one of us. He has a design in mind for each and every one of us when he did so. And he lives in each and every one of us. We're called to live out of that identity. To allow him to work through the reconciliation that Christ came to do. To restore that which has been lost. To restore that original design for us in our lives. I wonder would you stand with me and I'll pray for us. And then we'll go into our groups. <clears throat>